Bibles to the book of Acts. Um, I want to preach a sermon you normally don't preach on an Easter Sunday. I thought about it. Every, every Easter I preach the same sermon. Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, there are some people that this may be the only time you come once a year and you're wondering if I can preach a different sermon. I just want to prove to you today that I can. Uh, Lee Strobel, some of you may know his name. He, was a, 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 he worked as a journalist for the Chicago Tribune and has written a number of books since then. And one of the books he wrote is called The Case for Christ. And he tells a story in this book and he said that for much of my life, I was a skeptic. In fact, I actually considered myself to be an atheist. In other words, I did not believe that God existed. To me, there was, in his mind, too much evidence that God was merely a product in, of wishful thinking or of ancient mythology or primitive superstition. That's how he kind of equated uh, religion. And then he said this, how can there be a loving God if he consigned people to hell just for not believing in him? Or how can miracles overcome the basic laws of nature? And then he, then he said, didn't evolution satisfactorily explain how life originated? Oh, by the way, uh, if you guys are having a problem, listen, you know, when I was in school, they used to teach that, you know, the single cell was a very simple entity. You know, today with DNA, they know it's a very complex entity. As a matter of fact, most of the true scientists today talk about things, and they, they discuss it as intelligent design, because they cannot believe that this could all happen randomly. So I'm just letting you know, Lee's probably my age, so back in his day, this is kind of where you were kind of taught. And, and he says, um, doesn't scientific reasoning dispel belief in the supernatural? And as for Jesus, didn't you know that he never claimed to be God? Well, that's just what some people say. How many know that Jesus actually did claim to be God? And, and, and he did many times, and that's one of the reasons why he was crucified, folks. As a matter of fact, if, um, if you read John chapter 5, here's one illustration of it. It says, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. How many know that if you make yourself equal with God, what you're saying is you are God? And that's why they wanted to get rid of him. Because he was stating that, and, and if you study the passages of the Scripture very carefully, they considered that he was a blasphemer. In other words, he was saying something in their minds that could not be true. Strobel continues. He said, yes, Jesus was a revolutionary, a sage, someone who attacked the traditional ideas, but certainly not God. No, that thought never occurred to Jesus. Well, that's not what John tells us. I could point you to plenty of university professors who said so, as if they're never wrong. You know, listen, I've, I've gone to school so long now, and I've been to so many colleges and universities, and I'm gonna tell you something. Is I, I, I love school, I love learning, but I've discovered one thing. In all of the courses that I've taken, there is no such thing as the perfect university professor. Sorry, but that's reality. They do say things, and sometimes I just roll my eyes and go, there's no way this is true. You know, but when you're 20 or 18 or 19 years old, you know, it's almost like these guys walk on water, but they don't, unless it's the winter time. <laughs> Let's face it, even a brief examination of the evidence, he writes, demonstrates convincingly that Jesus had only been a human being just like you and me, although with unusual gifts of kindness and wisdom. But all 
But that's all I had ever really given the evidence, a brief look. I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism, a fact here, a scientific theory there, a pithy quote, a clever clever argument. Sure, I could see some gaps and inconsistencies, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them. And here's why he didn't want to believe in God, and I think he's now being honest when he said, I had a self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would would have to compel to abandon if we were ever to change my views and become a follower of Christ. You see, if you want to talk intellectual honesty, you can't go there, folks. And if you really study, you will discover that who Jesus said he is, he is. And there's a lot of evidence pointing in that direction. But most people don't want to know the truth. Please don't confuse me with the facts. Because I want to remain doing my own thing. And if, if Jesus Christ is truly God and he compels me to surrender my life and my actions before him, I may have to change how I'm living. And that's the big issue that many people struggle with. He says, as far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was not enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion um, In other words, for me, there wasn't enough proof to to change my viewpoint about Jesus, or so I thought. How many know God has a way to break through people like Lee? You know how he did it? He used his daughter. (laughs) He used a child. I think God has a sense of humor. (laughs) You know, fortunately, he came to discover that Jesus is more than just a man, but God who became flesh and came to set us free from our sins. Today, Lee, by the way, is a pastor and an author of some very insightful books on truth and reality, lots of apologetics, which is a defense of the faith. Uh, there are a lot of things in life that it doesn't really matter how we respond to it. It's true. You know, some people love to go to big truck show, shows, you know, you know, those massive trucks where they kind of ro- rumble over and crush other trucks, right? Some of you guys might enjoy that. I just can't relate to it, but some people, that's their thing, you know? And then there's another person, you know, oh, they want to go to a musical concert, and for some people, it's classical music, and for some people, it's a rock concert, and some people, it's country, western music. You know, everybody has a different taste in music. Isn't that true? And then some people enjoy a sporting event, you know, and they're screaming, you know, right? And some of them, you know, it's minus 30, and they don't have any clothes on, barely, you know, and they're painted in colors. I mean, you've seen it, right? Each of us, over time, develop different tastes and interests. People will disagree as to the various values of different things, and often it's only an expression of our personal preference. Isn't that true? It doesn't make a difference. You know, it doesn't matter if somebody likes to mash trucks, you know, and that's, you know, a legitimate expression or go to a sporting event or go to a musical concert. As they say, variety is the spice of life, but there are some things that are more important than other things. Move away from entertainment, fashion, and style to things like health and spiritual issues, and now we're forced to pay attention, and if we don't, we may do so to our own peril. That's what happened to David Bloom. He was a journalist who was actually covering the Iraq war. And David, ironically, did not die from injury sustained in conflict, but rather from a pulmonary embolism, which occurs usually among those who sit for long periods of time. And because Bloom spent much of his time cramped in an army vehicle, and he began to experience severe pain, he consulted numbers of doctors, and they kept 
describing his symptoms to these doctors and they advised him to seek proper medical help because he was talking on a phone, right? And they said, listen, David, you got to go in and, you know, that's a problem. You got to deal with it. And he didn't. Took a couple more aspirins, kept on working, and one day, gone as a young man. Though he took many precautions to avoid being a casualty of war, he ignored the warning of the doctors who insisted his life was in danger from a treatable condition. And the tragedy was he left behind a young wife and three small children because he ignored the warnings that his body was telling him. So there were some things in life, it doesn't really matter. That's not an issue of life and death. But when it comes to our health, folks, we can't ignore some of the warnings our bodies are sending. And I'm gonna suggest to you today, there are spiritual issues that are life and death. And if we ignore those warnings, it's to our own destruction. One of the most significant elements of life is relationship, and relationships are built on communication. And we either communicate or we grow apart. True? Listen, I've been doing so much you know, marriage stuff over the last 30 years, and I can tell you, when communication breaks down, we got a problem. I remember a number of years ago, a couple came to me and they wanted to get married, and they said, listen, you guys got so many issues, I don't wanna do this wedding. This isn't gonna work. And, you know, they just begged me to do the wedding. And I said, okay, I'll do it on one condition. Number one, that you guys learn how to communicate with each other and you learn how to resolve conflict. That's the only way I'm going to do this wedding because right now you neither communicate nor do you deal with your issues and you don't know how to resolve conflict. And so they said, yes, pastor, we're going to learn how to communicate. We're going to learn how to resolve conflict. We'll make that a priority. And so I went ahead and did the wedding. And guess what happened? They didn't deal with their issues. They didn't learn how to communicate, and they didn't learn how to address the issue of conflict resolution. You know what happened in a few years pretty soon? I find out they're no longer married. Am I surprised? No, not at all. Because I know that those are important issues. And when people, and so that really brought it, the death into their relationship. That brought an end to things. And when you and I don't pay attention to some very significant things, they become a matter of life and death. When God talks to us, do we listen to him? How do we respond? Are we pursuing him? You know, listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice. Today. Not, not 2,000 years ago when it was first written. See, God is speaking in the moment, and the question we have to answer is, Will I listen today? Today, if you hear his voice, what does it go on to say? Do not harden your heart. Wow. I want to talk about our hearts. Started Friday. Remember, I started talking about the condition of our heart, if you were here. I want to keep talking about our heart because this is so critical. How we respond to what God has to say is a matter of life and death. And it doesn't matter. You go, well, I'm a Christian pastor. I'm okay. How, you know what? We can neglect what God has to say, even as Christians. As a matter of fact, you know what really strikes me? And it's kind of scary. When I read the Bible, the people who are ignoring God many times are God's own people. I've read through the Old Testament. 
And then I read a sermon like Stephen is preaching in chapter 7 where he's, he's confronting people in the synagogue, which is the church of that day, which are the people of God, and he brings out the history of Israel. And the history of Israel is, you know what, people failing to hear the voice of God. And Stephen summarizes his sermon, here's your history, you've always resisted the voice of God. You've always resisted the work of the Spirit in your life. You've refused to hear God's voice. That's a very sobering thing to me. And that's something I think we need to really pay attention to. So the tr I think the tragedy is that many people today, even believers, aren't engaging God and his word in a way that really shapes, uh, that really shapes, uh, sorry, yeah, and guides their lives. True or false? Well, let me give you some, some interesting things. This was written in an article on parenting. And it says that nine out of 10 church teens say their church experience exposed them to Bible stories. Over nine out of 10. 95% of all kids that come to church say, I learned the stories of the Bible. 92% were taught the lives of the great people of the Bible. 89% of all the young people that attended church said that they had a fun experience. How many go, that's all positive? How many can see that's all positive? That's good stuff. Here's the challenge. But only half, 53% said the church, their church experience helped them understand the Bible enough to help them make decisions make, based on biblical principles. In other words, there was a disconnect and I'm afraid sometimes when we come to church, and even on an Easter Sunday, and even though we know a lot of things, that we're making a disconnect between what we know and what we do. You see, what happens is we haven't figured out how to take what we're hearing and actually apply it to our lives. Now, let me say this. Knowledge minus application equals non-transformation. It doesn't change anything. We can come to church, we can hear sermon after sermon, we can leave this place, and nothing changes in our life. Scary. You see, it's not going to help you. You have to have knowledge of God's word plus application, learning to have the wisdom. God, give me the wisdom to take these ideas and to put it into practice in my life. And the moment I start putting things into practice and I'm making decisions based on what I know the scripture is teaching, it leads to transformation. I start changing. My life starts changing. There's a new power in my life. And this is very critical. As a matter of fact, I don't think this is just a young person's problem. I think this is an everybody's problem. Joshua says it this way, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Let me ask you a question in this auditorium. In the vast majority of us in this room, I see you every single week, so I know that you are connecting to some way. We're engaging at some level. How many here can honestly say, that you are a daily Bible reader and that you literally think about what you're reading and possibly even write it down and meditate on what you're reading and thinking about how can I put this stuff into practice? This is your practice. Just raise your hand. How many? I'll be honest. Raise your hand. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. A 
okay, guys, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. This is supposed to be a great celebration service, but hear me out. It's not enough to come to church. I love it when you come to church. I think you're obeying God when you come to church. I think it's a great thing to come to church. But it's not enough to really bring about transformation in your life. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to help you. Listen, look what this verse says. If we would just do this one verse, and if we put this one verse into practice, I will make an ironclad guarantee your life will never be the same again. Take a look at what it says. By the way, this verse is quoted again in Psalm 1. By the way, it just keeps getting quoted in different ways and said differently throughout the Bible. But it goes like this. If you meditate on God's word day and night, you're going to, and be careful to do everything written. In other words, you're going to apply what you're learning. You will be prosperous and successful. You know what my prayer is? My prayer is that you guys will be the cream of the crop in the city of Red Deer. I want you to do so good. I want to walk on and go, hey, I'm their pastor. They're awesome. Hey, look at these. These guys are the people. They're the cream of the crop. And you know why I can say that? Because you're practicing what you're reading you're putting it into practice, and I know God's going to honor your lives. Hmm, interesting sermon, right? Already this is a different sermon than most Easter sermons, I know. What we need to understand is that our response to God's word is really a matter of life and death. Now, I'm going to move real quickly. There's only two responses to the word of God. It's real simple. The first is simply, we either resist it, we can resist it. Now, a lot of times when we read these stories, we see, well, yeah, these are non-believers resisting it. Okay, let's look at Acts 17. Turn there to verse 1. Paul and his, and his companions are missionaries, and they're going now through the country of Greece, present-day Greece. And they've passed through Amphipolis, Polis is the city of Amphi, and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Mm. Jewish synagogue, God's people. Where do they go? To the house of worship. Right? Why does Paul do that? Because he's going to take the Bible, and it's only the Old Testament right now, and he's going to show them from the scriptures that the Messiah has come and he's going to prove to them that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. And Paul, I mean, he got totally transformed. We know his story, he got converted on the road to Damascus. He was against these Christians. He thought that Jesus was a false Messiah, but then he got con con uh, confronted by him and recognized that he had been raised from the dead, and he, just miracle after miracle started happening, and so he became the greatest proponent, the greatest missionary, the greatest one to communicate because of the, literally the radical transformation in his life. And so he started where he expected to find the greatest response, right, in the church. I mean, I'm just using terms that we understand. I'm equating synagogue to church, the Jewish people, the believers, like to Christians, they're the, God's people, right? Then he comes and starts speaking to them. And, uh, and it starts out here, verse 2, it says, And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue. I mean, he's a habitual synagogue attender. 
habitual church attender. And it says, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And so he took Old Testament texts and he showed them that the Messiah had to suffer. I'm sure he preached from Isaiah 53 and and other passages of scripture showing them that he had to suffer and showing them he had to rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ or the Messiah. You know, Christ is the Greek word, Christos, Messiah is the Hebrew word. And he said, so he said, and then verse 4 says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. In other words, in the synagogue, there were people that hung out and they weren't necessarily fully committed Jews, because how many know to be a fully committed male Jew required something of you? Circumcision. So you have to buck up, boy, to make that kind of commitment. How many here want to receive circumcision, right? You you think twice about a decision like that. That's a painful decision. Okay, some of you may not know what that is. I don't know. (laughs) If you don't know what it is, go to your Google and type in circumcision and it'll tell you. So this is a big commitment. But you know, it's interesting, when he went there, it says, but, verse 5, but some of the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. In other words, they didn't believe what Paul left to say. And so there was resistance to the message. Now, how many know that it's possible to be sitting in a church and hearing the preaching of the Bible, and we're actually speaking to an issue in your life, and you're going, that's not what it means. Come on now, we play these games. You know, I don't, I, I, if, if that's true, that means I gotta change something in my life. Right? Now, I don't, you know, here's one of my deepest concerns in North America. We've preached grace so wonderfully, but we have a misunderstanding of it. And what I mean by that is, like, we explain to people, you don't have to do anything at all to become a Christian, except for trust Jesus. Is that true? Yes, it is true. That's it. You trust Christ. Well, in the sense that part of it is you repent. You have to change your mind about who you are and who Christ is. And so there's that that sense of a change of mind and I'm going to put my trust in Christ. But as a result of that, when we're trusting in Christ, what we're doing is actually surrendering to him as Yahweh, as God. And that is a big, you know, we don't always explain that to people. See, we go, come to Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. But what we're really saying to them is, you know, and it's not always said because when you're a Jewish person, you understand this. When they were saying that Jesus is Lord, they were saying that he is Yahweh. You know, he is God. And you have to surrender to God and you have to, you know, as a result of that, you're under a new authority in your life. And the problem in North America is most of us have been under an old authority we think it's ourselves, but really it's Satan. He's controlling our lives far more, more powerfully than we realize. And you go, how does he control us? Through our sinful desires and passions. And so we become very addicted to immoral lifestyles and behaviors, and we struggle with issues, and we don't think we can get free of those things. And I want to tell you that God's power is so great, it can deliver us from that. And so we struggle with this stuff. But we really struggle with the Lordship of Christ. And then it goes on to say, and I read it Friday night, but it says, salvation to all who obey him. 
And so out of this grace message, out of this thing is that you and I now have a new authority in our lives and now we're not our own anymore. We've been bought with a price and we're here to live to bring glory to God and so we're really, it's a calling to live an obedient life. And that's where we struggle. And so, you know, we, we understand that we're saved by grace but that it has huge implications and ramifications in our lives. And that's the part we have a hard time with. And so a lot of times sermons are preached and all of a sudden we, we start thinking we have to be moral, you know, because we're told we gotta do this, we're told we gotta do that. But what I'm gonna suggest to you is this, that when we trust Christ, he empowers us to do the right thing. That's the difference. He gives us the strength. He creates the want to do the right thing and then he gives us the ability to do the right thing. But every once in a while, we get lazy. And we neglect things, right? And so we start drifting spiritually, and we're not where we think we are because we've allowed this drift to come into our life. Now, the apostle Paul here focuses on the word of God. It says here that he, you know, he was reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So uh, Paul focused on the word of God. You know, we need to understand it. We need to believe it's the word of God. You know, one of the reasons why Billy Graham became so dynamic was he had an amazing, amazing moment of doubt in his life. And if you read his story, he shares that back in the late 1940s, he had an associate named Charles Templeton. Some of you may know the story. And Charles Templeton actually became a person who became an atheist. He was actually a minister who began to struggle with some of the scriptures and other Christian ideas and he finally abandoned his faith and made an unsuccessful attempt to persuade Billy Graham to do the same. And this is what he said about Billy Graham. He felt sorry for him. He said, he's committed intellectual suicide by closing his mind. In other words, he was embracing the doubts of the time. And while the battle for the soul and, 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 and mind of Billy Graham was being waged, he was listening to the preaching of someone that I have sermons by in a book form called Edwin Orr. Edwin Orr is a, uh, spoke a lot about revival. And, he, and Billy Graham came to a deep conviction that the Bible was and is the word of God. And I don't know if you notice when he's preaching, but Billy Graham will do something like, and the Bible says. Have, how many have ever noticed that he keeps quoting the Bible? He speaks as if the Bible has its own sense of authority. And I want to declare to you, it does have that. And that's why thousands of people around the world, I'd say millions of people, have listened to Billy Graham preach and thousands of people have given their lives to Christ because of the authority, not of Billy Graham, but of the Word of God. And we need to understand that. So whenever we deviate from the Word of God, we lose our authority to speak to our generation. And there's a huge battle going on today over this issue still. This is not lessened one iota, folks. And I think we need to really know what the Bible has to say. Now, this, this word uh, translated reason with them literally means that Paul discussed the scriptures. Now, some of us as elders, we've had a conversation this last Thursday night. I want to just open this up. That from this point on, we're going to create a new culture in our church after the sermons that if you have questions you can come forward. We're going to have altar workers here. You can go meet in room 10. You can have a coffee there. You can sit down and process what you hear on Sunday. Okay? Is this, 
In other words, if you want to pray with somebody, you want to ask questions to somebody, you want to work this issue through, you know, something didn't sit right, it wasn't settled in your mind, or you're wrestling with a problem, we, we don't want to just stop. Because I think a lot of times God's spirit is moving and dealing with things, but what do we do? We leave here and immediately we forget what we heard. So we're going to give you that opportunity beginning this morning. If you want to come forward afterwards and say, hey, you know what, I want to... I want to wrestle with this stuff and our elders are here this morning they're prepared to talk to you okay and this is what Paul was doing with them explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead okay you know this proclaiming is the idea of preaching it's the same idea that Jesus was explaining or opening up their understanding when he's walking on the road to Emmaus he was opening up the scriptures to them and there's something powerful when the scripture comes alive in our lives Howard Marshall says his total stay in town, however, may have been longer. So they talk about how long maybe he was there. But here's the real issue. I'm going to skip that. Most people who reject the gospel have little knowledge of the scriptures. Some of the Bible's harshest critics over the centuries have displayed a shocking ignorance of its teaching. You know, people say to you, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Where? Show me. And I can explain it. You know, there is a, you know, there's a reason for the way it's written. And there's a lot that we can learn. And, and Lord willing, in the fall, I want to teach a class on how to, how to be a better interpreter of the Scriptures. How to actually read the Bible so you get the most out of it. Does that sound interesting? Yeah. I want you guys to grow and learn in these experiences. But let me move on to the second response. I'm going to just skip a bunch here. The second response, if the first one is simply a resistance to the word, the second one is a receptivity to the word. How eager are we to receive God's word? How honest and open are our hearts to hearing what God has to say? And I love this story because it says here, you know, they caused trouble. Paul had to flee Thessalonica. You know, there was a riot in the city. I mean, how many, wouldn't this be amazing? You know, you're preaching and uh, you actually cause a riot in the community. Now, see, Canadians, we can't even relate to this. But I can guarantee you, if you go to the Asian countries right now and start preaching, you will have these kind of reactions. This is very typical of an, you know, of an Asian person. I'm not trying to say it in a prejudicial way, but I mean, these people are intense. You know, you just don't say things and get away with it. You go to India and start preaching, you're gonna get some response from people. It's a highly religious country, I guarantee you. You know, instead of allowing their prejudice to overtake their reason... And by the way, prejudice holds us and keeps us from opening our hearts and minds to truth. Now, I was just reading this morning. Paul was preaching and explaining his testimony in Acts 22, and it says he was explaining how he'd become a, a convert to Christ and his whole experience. And as he, was preach, as he was sharing this, the crowd was there. There was a mob. He'd finally got him silenced, you know. And then he said, until he mentioned the word Gentiles... And then they went nuts. They started screaming and shouting, this man doesn't, he's not fit to live. In other words, they were so prejudiced in their minds against Gentiles, they wouldn't even listen to him after that. And I want to just suggest to us, we have to be very careful that we don't allow our prejudices to keep us from hearing what God has to say. It's true. And we all have them in this room. We all are prejudiced in one way or another. And so we need to learn how to listen and say, okay, I'm hearing this. I'm not buying it, but I'm listening. You know, I'm trying to figure this out. 
And, and then we get to Acts 17, verse 10, and he goes on to say, As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to a Jewish synagogue. Interesting. You know, I, I got I to tell you a little story. We were in Greece a few years ago. And we were on our Israel trip, and we went to Greece, and I wanted to see all the cities that Paul had gone to. So we drove, you know, six hours north from Athens all the way up to Thessalonica, but we stopped over at Berea. And it was interesting. We were actually at a place where Paul had probably spoken in Berea. And the man, you know what? I don't know. It, it, sometimes places have a spirit about it. And there was a restauranter across the street, saw our bus pull up. He came out with little teacups to show us hospitality. Is that awesome? And in my mind, I'm reading the story. Listen, let me read it for you. It says. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. You know what? That same spirit of openness and hospitality was there 21 centuries later. I was like stunned. Going, God, this is amazing. It kind of reinforced the passage I'm reading, right? So we all went over to his restaurant and we got to chat with him. And many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So there's only really two responses today to God's word we either resist it because of our prejudice, because maybe it's impacting my life, maybe it's speaking to an issue I don't want to address. You know, so I say, well, the Bible doesn't literally mean this. Or you know what people do? They go, but God's so gracious. He'll forgive us. And so we start justifying our sinfulness. Instead of saying, God, I'm so sorry. What I'm doing is actually helping crucify you. But I'm struggling with this issue. And I know how gracious you are. And I know how much you want to set me free. Would you come and deliver me? Would you actually take the thing that I've enjoyed doing that's a sin and create within my heart a disgust for it? Help me to hate what is evil within me so that I in turn can love what is what you love. And that you could so change my heart and so reorient my, my orientation in life that I would begin to desire and delight in the things above and I would lose an attachment for the things below. Can I just tell us all, at the end of the day, everything you're living for down here below is going to be gone. The only things that have eternal merit are people. And the only things that are going to last in a positive eternal way are those that yield and surrender their lives to Christ. Interesting, isn't it? So we only have one or two responses. And so today I thought, you know, I'm going to do something totally different in this sermon. I'm going to challenge us, if you're a believer here today, or if you're a non-believer, it doesn't really matter. Because your response to God's word is going to define your eternity. Let me just close with a story. It's told uh, of this guy named Emile Calais. Calais was born in a small French village near the end of the 19th century. His early education, he was committed to naturalism. 
leaving no room for God or supernatural intervention in human affairs. But his naturalistic study in philosophy proved little help to him when eventually he moved into the 20th century and he had to fight in World War I. How many know World War I was a terrible, terrible conflict? A lot of people were dying. He was 20 years old. Confronted with the horrors of war, he said to himself, what help has all of my philosophy done me when my friend who I'm speaking to uh, of his mother dies standing in front of you? What help does all my philosophy do then? What is, what's the meaning of all of this? You know, a person can endure anything if it appears meaningful. And he said, I too felt, not with my reason, but with my whole being, that I was naked and war or no war, destined to perish miserably when the hour came. One night, a bullet found Calais. An American field ambulance crew saved his life, and after a nine-month stay, he was discharged and resumed his graduate studies. But he had to admit the books no longer seemed like the same books, nor was his motivation the same. Reading at length in philosophy and literature, he found himself probing in depth for meaning. What is this all about anyways? During long night watches in the foxholes, I had in a strange way been longing for a book that would understand me. But I knew of no such book. Nor would in secret prepare one, sorry, now in secret he began to prepare one for his own private use. And so he says, I went on reading from my courses. I would file passages that would speak to my condition and carefully copy them in a leather-bound pocketbook I'd always carried with me. The quotations which I numbered in red ink for easier reference would lead me, as it were, from fear and anguish through a variety of intervening stages to supreme utterances of release and jubilation. At last the day came when he put the finishing touches on it, the book that would understand me. He describes a beautiful sunny day in which he sat under a tree and he opened his precious anthology. That's the collection of all of his quotations. And as he read, however, he was overcome by a growing disappointment. Instead of speaking to his condition as he had expected, the passages only reminded him of the content of his circumstances, of the labor that he had done over their selection. Then Calais said, he knew that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was of his own making. It carried no strength of persuasion. In a dejected mood, he put the little book back in his pocket. On that same day, Calais' wife had come into possession of a Bible by a very extraordinary circumstance. Emil had always been adamant that religion would be taboo in their home, but at the age of 23, he had never seen a Bible. At the end of that disappointing day when he had tucked the little book in his pocket, she apologetically tried to explain how she had, quote, unquote, received the Bible. He picked it up, eager to see it. He described now what happened next. I literally grabbed the book, rushed to my study with it, opened it, and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read, I read, I read out loud. And an indescribable warmth began to surge within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned on me. This was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I had attempted to write my own, but in vain. 
I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels. And lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive in me. Hallelujah. The word of God is a living word. Let us stand this morning. And just with every head bowed this morning, we've gone a totally different route today, but very intentionally. Because, you know, I find it is so easy for us to pray for everybody else. Lord, help people understand. Help these other guys get it, right? This morning, I found myself awoke, awakened at four in the morning praying. Lord, help me to get it. Help me to get it. Because so often, you know what? We don't take it to ourselves and say, okay, Lord, search me. Search my heart. May your word come into my life. Right? Think about it. How eager are you to know God? It's a great question. Well, I already know I'm pastor. I'm busy living life. That's how most Christians live. How eager are you to know God? You know, you can create it. How many know that you actually, you know, think about people who are addicted. It, it's created within them. You know, after a while when you're an addict, think about what happens to you. Everything else in life begins to diminish. You think about it. Your focus is on your addiction. I've got to meet this need in my life. You know, I think a lot of us are looking to have the deepest needs of our soul met by something outside of ourselves. But I'll just say something to us. God has designed the human soul. There's only one thing that'll fit to satisfy the longing in that soul. It's not another person. It's not success, it's not money, it's not fame. It's not all of the addictions people fill their lives with. It's God himself. I'll tell you something. If we're not eager for God, let's just say, Father, forgive me. If we're not earnestly desiring him, if we don't crave him, we don't long for after him, we don't get into his scriptures. We don't get into the word of God. We don't allow those words to become what's nurturing and nourishing and sustaining and strengthening our soul. You know what's going to happen? We're going to walk around grumpy and angry and frustrated and disillusioned and disenchanted with life. And I think to this morning, there's a lot of people right now, there's a restlessness in many human souls right now. And I'm challenging us today. That rest can only be found in God himself. That rest can only be found in the living Savior, Jesus. You know, Emile Calais discovered Jesus. And there was such an excitement in his soul. You know, I'm going to just tell you something. It's so exciting to be studying the same book. 17, I began to read the Bible. 21, I surrendered to Christ. I've been studying it ever since. Do you know I'm more excited today than I have ever been in my entire life? I've never been more excited. 
I've never seen so much in this word. I'm, I'm more excited about Jesus today than I've ever been in my entire life. I'm having a renewed love affair with him. It's exciting. I want to encourage you today. You say, I'm not there, Pastor. You know what? You can say, Jesus, give me a heart after you. What's he going to say? No, I'm not interested in that. Of course he's interested in that. You know, don't let the things of this world cheat you from that which is the best. We, we, have, we have a good life here. But I'm concerned that it's cheating us from the best life. This is the best life. With every head bowed, how many here this morning would say, you know what, I can honestly say, you know, I think I've been resisting God's word. That's me today, Pastor. But I want God to change my heart. I want to be a receiver. I want to be a noble Berean. I want to respond to it in a new way. If that's you today, just raise your hand. That's you. It's good. Some hands are going up. How many here say, you know, by the grace of God, help me, Lord. I want to get into your word on a daily basis. I want to start feeding my soul. I want God to really start working in my life. I want to make the pursuit of God my main aim. If that's you today, just raise your hand. My hand's up. He's my main aim. I'm shooting for him. And I'll tell you, that's where true satisfaction is going to come from. And for the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, you're either shy, you're going, it doesn't apply to me, I don't know. I'm going to pray that you will not resist the voice of the Father, because I believe he's been speaking today. Do not harden your heart. Don't resist him. He loves you so much. You know, I have fun. I have a little granddaughter now. I don't tell that many granddaughter stories, but I love when she goes, come, Poppy. That's my name. Come, Poppy. Just come and see. She wants me to experience life with her. She takes me by the hand and drags me into another room. I, of course, I go willingly. And we go in this other room to experience life together. Let me tell you something. The Spirit of God is taking you by the hand this morning. He says, come, come and let's see. I want to show you something. I want to show you a life that's so much richer than what you're experiencing right now. Take my hand. Come with me. I'll lead you into a, a, a depth of life that, you know, even trial and sorrow won't face. So, Lord, I thank you for your desire for us. Your longing for us as your children. How you long for us to spend time with you. Hearing your voice, walking with you, experiencing life together. Applying these beautiful words of life and wisdom and understanding, Lord. But so often we live as paupers. When the beautiful table is spread before us, we're only eating the crumbs. Father, help us. Give us a heart after you. Give us a longing after you. Give us a desire after you, Lord. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God